happy Saturday. It is September, the 2nd, in fact, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. Michael, at least you and I are feeling optimistic and buoyed by the arrival of fall. Nespa, like, we're not mourning the end of summer. Not at all. No, it's the leaves are turning already, and I'm looking forward to it, although it's like the crush begins. You sort of get back to town after Labor Day, and here it comes, and all this comes rushing towards you. So, But I'm prepared. I'm tanned. No, I'm not tanned. I'm a little bit rested and kind of ready. So how about you? You're always prepared. You're in the saddle. You're riding through town. It's all happening. That's a pretty middling response. I'm kind of prepared, kind of rested. Michael, come on. I'm rested. <laughs> I hope so. I'm not tanned, but I'm rested and ready. I was out in Kensington Gardens this morning. It's 57 degrees here and people were still swimming in the serpentine, which you gotta love the Londoners and their can-do attitude. But no, it feels good here. I mean, there's an awful lot of energy. We've got some great stories in the issue this week and also a lot of exciting things happening in the airmail verse. Our new Arts Intel search engine is up and running. Incredibly useful for those of you who are traveling this fall. And in the meantime, Michael, I think we should just dig in here in podcast land with what is no doubt one of our most immersive and delicious issues in a long time. And we've got a great show that reflects it with great guests and stories. As you note, summer might be over, but every summer has its anthem. And this summer it was not Beyonce or T. Swift. There's been a different kind of song that broke through. It's a country ballad by a 31-year-old that has 47 million views on YouTube. And Diane Diana B. Henriquez has a story on rich men north of Richmond. If you haven't heard it, you can check it out and add to that 47 million. Then speaking of rich men, Joseph Bullmore will join us from London with a story of an oligarch's revenge, specifically what happened to an English socialite when her love affair with Putin's banker went sour. Finally, your summer travel may be winding down, but Alexander Lebrano has an idea for an exciting new restaurant to escape to this fall. It is a meal worth flying for, so don't put your suitcase in storage just yet. And Ashley, where would you like to begin today? Do you even have to ask, Michael? We are obviously going to start with the oligarch's wife. Joseph Bulmore is a writer at large for Airmail. Welcome, Joe Bulmore. Okay, Joe, one of the many passions that you and I share, we love London, okay? We love newspapers, we love magazines, but we also love complete and utter characters. I don't even know what to say about Alexandra Tolstoy. Like, she's as original as they come. First of all, who is Alexandra Tolstoy? Alexandra Tolstoy is several things, really. She is a sort of luxury travel consultant. She curates antiques. She's done a cashmere collection with Aurora. She's a mother of three, but more, I think, prominently as far as the British press is concerned, she is the former partner of a very notable oligarch called Sergei Pugachev, who was and still is referred to as Putin's banker and one of the sort of financial powerhouses who many believe helped bring Putin to power in the early 2000s. Pugachev is now an exile in the Côte d'Azur in his sort of literal gilded cage over there. He can't really leave his Riviera Chateau, which doesn't sound terrible. And Alexandra, who is very much estranged from him, is living in London with her three children in what I was very surprised to find when I went to interview her in July was relative sort of normality and calm, which you wouldn't expect when you read her quite fantastic and wild backstory. So tell us about the backstory because she has the backstory and then she gets connected with Pugachev and makes a mistake where they don't get married legally. So tell us where she comes from, how she gets tied up with Pugachev and now how she seems to be the one suffering most from what's happening, right? Yeah. So... Alexandra Tolstoy, who, despite her very Russian name, grew up in a 
pretty normal, I suppose, upper middle class upbringing in Oxfordshire. Went to the same private school, though not at the same time, I think, as Kate Middleton. And her father is a sort of distant relative through one long line of the Tolstoy family to, of course, the writer Leo Tolstoy. And she went to travel the Silk Road on her gap year, as many Brits do, and fell in love there with a Cossack bare-chested rider. And they got married when she was in her sort of late 20s and she left her job in finance to live a life with him in Moscow. While she was there, she was hired to be the English tutor for an unknown character who soon, it became clear, was Sergei Pugachev, who was trying to learn English. And they fell in love, apparently, after having met each other again at a charity ball a little further down the line. And through a whirlwind romance, they had three kids and she left her previous husband and very quickly became embroiled in Pugachev's world, which involved everything you expect from a Russian billionaire oligarch, private jets, huge yachts, houses on the Côte d'Azur, massive piles in the English countryside, apartments everywhere and all sorts of cash. But as you allude to, it wasn't a happy ending in that regard. As you note, in 2016, now starts to unravel. He goes into exile in France. But now she's in the news because she's been caught up in what's referred to, as you say, one probably perhaps the word of the year, a debanking scandal that's in London, right? Yeah, absolutely. So she is one of the sort of latest people to be hit by, yeah, this debanking scandal, which involves NatWest, one of the prominent high street banks over here. And essentially they have been writing to people with no notice, saying that they're going to shut their bank accounts very quickly because they believe them to be either politically exposed, that's the word they used, or in some way morally dubious in ways they don't outline. In Alexandra's case, it seems to me very likely that it's because of her former entanglement with Sergei Pugachev. But the actual report that they produced, I think, to show her or that she discovered had been used for the basis of the debanking, basically linked to two fairly tabloidy Daily Mail articles that said she lived in Monaco, which she didn't, that she been married to Pugachev, which she wasn't. So yeah, she sort of had to scramble to get her financial affairs in order, as many people have. And when I met her, she was in the middle of this sort of media round, I suppose, to try and tell her story and encourage other people to come forward in what was a quite rapidly escalating situation with this whole debanking scandal thing. Joe, as you and I talked about this story, there was a question that kept popping up, which is that for someone who says she wants privacy and just to live a normal life, she's in the media an awful lot. How do you explain that? I don't no, I mean, when I met her, I was very impressed by her sort of candor about, I suppose, the elements of her life, which she's now really quite embarrassed by, the extreme wealth. And she, there was a documentary made about her in which she sort of walks into this cavernous wardrobe of Manola Blahniks and shows off all her library of handbags. And she's really quite embarrassed about that now. I think, to be honest with you, she, having gone from a world where she was incredibly wealthy and supported, and she got three kids to look after, I think a prominent name and a prominent profile is no bad thing in her various endeavours. I also think that in this case, she's got a valid story to tell. The debanking thing seems to me to have been a wild overreach of sort of moral arbitration by the banks. But yeah, it, it makes for a really interesting mix, this tale. It's a morality tale, and I'm not sure what the moral is, other than be careful who you get entangled with, perhaps. And she's also, interestingly enough, become a bit of a social media star, right? Like a lot of the wives or ex-wives or ex-partners of oligarchs have gone into hiding, right? Lest their economic circumstances be further compromised. But here she is. She has nothing left to lose, so it seems. So it does put her in an interesting position, certainly in terms of London society. How do you think she's perceived here? It's a really good question. I think from having met her, she seems to me like many 
people I've met of that ilk. I don't really know what I mean by that. But very charming, very socially engaged and connected. She's certainly got very good and distinct taste. If you didn't know her backstory, I suppose I'm trying to say, and you met her charming children, you would think she was just another sort of member, and I mean this in the most positive way because I'm one of them too, of the sort of chattering classes of West London. So yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. And I think it has been a very difficult time for anyone who's sort of oligarch adjacent, and I'm not trying to play them any violins, but Alexandra, at least, I think is one of the definitely the more sympathetic figures, namely because, yes, I think she certainly got the rough end of the deal and has had some really quite horrible things happen to her and her children in the time that her and Pugachev have been estranged. She tells one story, which I talk about in the piece, where... Uh, yeah, there was a knock on the door when she was out one evening and a Russian woman barged into the house essentially and tried to, to sort of steal her children away on a Eurostar to France to meet Pugachev. And the one thing Alexandra says is that Sergei, her former partner, thinks that people will do anything for money. He thinks money rules the world. But the children were smart enough, even at their young age, not to accept the bags of cash that were being handed to them and say no to this woman and, and stay put in the house. But I think it was pretty traumatic for the children. And those sort of things seem to happen not often, but enough that it must be pretty disconcerting, I think. Joe, is there a possibility, I'm just saying this, in the Le Carre version of this, she's actually working for Putin at this point. He flees and she stays in London. And I'm just saying. Yeah. I mean, that's something that has been put to me before. And in fact, that is a theory that Sergei Pugachev, who himself has a very colourful Instagram account, which seems 90% devoted to taking down Alexandra Tolstoy. That's the theory he's puts forward. And in fact, what she said to me was that she was worried that Sergei had been in direct contact with the British government somehow or someone with some power and told them so much that she might be involved in some tangential way with the Russian state. And that maybe was the root cause of her being debanked. Can't you also see a fictionalised account of this as a six-part show on Hulu or Netflix or HBO? Yeah, definitely. And I don't think it's over. I think we're on part four or five. And hopefully there's a dramatic six-part twist. But hopefully one in which everyone comes out relatively okay and happy. But yeah, it's full of great characters. Sergei Pugachev, for example, seems, yeah, incredibly colourful. And Alexander describes him at first as like kind of magnetically charismatic. And he certainly seems to have had all the sort of tricks and charms of a confidence trickster who kind of wormed his way into her personality and her social life before turning very quickly into this very abusive, controlling, furious monster with these hired dugs who basically stop her from leaving the house. So yeah, it's ripe for adaptation. I don't know who's going to play who. Joe, I love that you think you're a hard-boiled, cynical guy there in London, but you want a happy ending for whatever. I love that. It's so kind of you. Yeah, quite right. Well, I'm a big softie, really. <laughs> yeah, that's all I could say. But no, it's a great story to write up. Joe, thank you so much. No doubt we'll be back here soon with another intriguing personality. Super. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. Okay. I mean, Michael, don't you kind of want to take Alexander Tolstoy out to lunch? Yeah, I do. I'd probably have to pay for it, but maybe she can finagle it. I don't know, but yes. Small price to pay for all that storytelling, Michael. You can afford it. Yeah, terrific story. And as you say, rich oligarchs in the south of France, and we got Richmond, north of Richmond, and Diana B. Enriquez telling us about this story, right? This is the song that's been number one for a couple of weeks, written and performed by a man named Oliver Anthony. Diana P. Henriquez is a journalist and the author of several books, including the upcoming one, Taming the Street, The Old Guard, The New Deal, and FDR's Fight to Regulate American Capitalism. It'll be published on September 12th by Random House. Welcome, Diana. 
So, Diana, one of the questions, I mean, obviously, as you note in your column this week, this song's been viewed on YouTube more than 40 million times and got into a little bit, as you note, that ruffle during the Republican debate where the Republicans and Fox News wanted to see it as a song against the left. The left didn't even want to own it. But as you note, it's sort of in that sort of folk, Woody Guthrie, mountain music tradition. So why do you think this song is connecting across the spectrum right now with people? I think there is a lot of discouragement, a lot of alienation from the power structure, which is, as you noted, what made it so weird that it was in being embraced at the GOP debate by people trying to run the power structure. But I think it is emblematic of two things, really. One is the long and, to me, very sad hijacking of country music by the most conservative elements in our country. It was not this way when I grew up, and it's not this way in every precinct of country. Country music. I mean, you can find songs like Humble and Kind by Tim McGraw. You can find songs like I've Got Friends That Do, likewise by McGraw, that are compassionate, empathetic towards the plight of average folks, and yet not cruel or angry. They're calling on our better angels, really. And a lot of country music has done that over the years. But in the past couple of decades, I've seen country music portrayed on the right as our music. Well, allow me to protest. It's my music, too. It just astonished me that country music in general would be embraced this way on the right and consequently, sadly, largely rejected on the left as having nothing to say to us liberals, but also that this particular tune, which is full of the pathos that you can find in some of the Great Depression songs. I mean, I was listening last night to Joe Hill, the great labor organizing ballad written in 1936 and more recently reprised by Bruce Springsteen. So these were songs for labor organizers. They were songs for mine workers, which was my grandfather. They were songs for hard luck, bedrock people. And today I see the sneers, I'm troubled by the sneers of so many liberals about this genre of music. And so this was just sort of my tipping point. This is when I broke, when I saw the reaction, the right wing embrace of a song, which if you sit down and open your heart and listen to the words, is about all the people that, as I say in my column, the New Deal was designed to help in the Great Depression. That's how far back this root of compassion in country music goes. So I think it's partly I'm upset that country music in general has been hijacked by the right. And I'm amazed that this particular song has been hijacked by the right. Diana, maybe country music is due for a rebrand. Well, that's a good idea. I think. I don't know how it would do. I mean, when I first moved to the New York City area, I couldn't believe there was not a country music radio station I could listen to. (laughs) Now, of course, with the great spotification of the nation, you can listen to country music anywhere. But I think it is due for a new look. There are songs and country anthems that I've loved all my life that the liberal progressive wing of our party today could embrace, could, as you say, rebrand, could put forth. And the advantage of that, when you think about it, is it confronts this elitism smear that the right is so quick to throw at the left. I mean, I'm an unabashed progressive. I love country music. So if more unabashed progressives could embrace the best of country music, the most compassionate, the most empathetic of country music. I think not only would it help country music, but I think it would also help the progressives touch 
more closely the hearts of the people on the right. Diana, in your column, you've taken us back to take sort of another look at the period of FDR's presidency and what the New Deal meant to the people of the United States. And it seems like we're living in many ways in a sort of similar, I mean, very dissimilar, but also sort of similar moment in terms of mood. Can you explain that parallel a bit? Well, obviously, an economist would roll his eyes or her eyes and say, are you kidding me? I mean, in the Great Depression, 25 percent of this workforce in America was idle. And that was a minimum. There were towns where the stats show as many as 40, 45 percent of workers were out of work. Many other workers working part time or for reduced wages. So the suffering was so severe. And by the time Franklin Roosevelt was sworn in in the spring of 1933, not only were we mired in a nearly three year depression, our banking system was falling apart. Every state in the union had shut their banks by the time he was sworn in. The engines of manufacturing had already rusted and stopped. And now the engines finance were dead. So from an objective standpoint, no economist would buy that we are anywhere close to a Great Depression moment right now. But where there are parallels is in the tension between authoritarian answers to our economic problems and liberal democratic answers to our economic problems. And that was true in the 1930s. The 20s were filled with admiring publicity about Benito Mussolini in Italy and how fascism there in Italy was bringing their economy back to life. And there was a very real segment of the American voters that thought, well, hey, that might be a good idea because democracy isn't getting it done here. And on the left, there were angrier and angrier protests led by socialists, led by communists who were exploiting the anger and need to build up their political base. So when FDR stepped in and said, wait a minute, let's give democracy one more chance to fix this. It was at a knife's edge point in our highly polarized political environment. And I think that's what echoes so much today, that we seem poised between a terrible outcome and a healthy outcome. And none of us really know how it's going to turn out. Economically, we're far better off than we were in the Great Depression, obviously. And one of the reasons we are is a lot of the financial reforms that Franklin Roosevelt brought in as part of his New Deal. But somehow we take those for granted. We take where we are now in terms of our economic development for granted and are looking to blame people. Well, thus it was in the 1930s as well, that need to find someone to blame. So I think there's a lot of political strands that are familiar to us from the Great Depression. I think there's also a growing ignorance, as I protest in my column, about what went before, that we've been here. We've been in a deeply divided country facing really challenging economic problems, whether they're from climate change, from global trade, from war. We've had to deal with this before. And I think knowing the minutes of the last meeting is always useful when you're trying to move forward. And I think this is one example of where what we forgot about the road we've traveled, both economically, politically and musically, what we've forgotten about that is catching up with us. That's what I hope to address with the piece I wrote. It's a wonderful story, Diana. And frankly, I've got a new Spotify playlist in the works as a result of it. So thank you so much. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Thanks, Diana. You're wonderful. Okay, well, just because the summer is over does not mean that you have an excuse to stop traveling. 
for those who are desperate to get back on an airplane, we have an incredible destination that Alec Lebrano has just returned from. He is a writer at large for Airmail, and his latest book is the gastronomic coming-of-age story, My Place at the Table, A Recipe for a Delicious Life in Paris. Welcome, Alec Lebrano, and let's talk turkey. Pleasure to be here. Okay, Alec, you eat marvelous meals almost every day of the week. It is your job after all. But you came back from Turkey, as we would say in French, bouleversé, like totally moved and shocked and stunned and delighted by what you ate there. Tell us all about this fabulous new restaurant. Well, this, the name of this chef, he has the Michelin Guide published its first edition, Istanbul edition this year. And then there's one two-star restaurant in Istanbul and it's called Turk. And the chef's name is Fatih and he's also got a new restaurant at the just opened Peninsula Hotel. His career is amazing. He lived in China for a long time. He worked with Paul Perret, who has three Michelin stars in Shanghai. He worked all over. He was in Guangzhou. He was in Bangkok. He was all over the place. He left Istanbul $300 in his pocket and wildly English and just decided this is what he wanted to do. So he lived in Asia for 15 years. And But then he started thinking about it, and he thought, I want to bring what I've learned back to my home. I miss Istanbul, and Istanbul is one of the most mesmerizing cities in the world. See, he went back, and he opened his restaurant, and then the Peninsula people, with, I think it's one of the shrewdest hotel restaurant stories I've seen in years, asked him to design a restaurant for them called Galata, which is in the New Peninsula Hotel. And the theme of it, whenever I hear theme, I usually shut down when it comes to restaurants. Don't theme, cook. That's my motto. But they wanted him to do something on the theme of the Silk Road from their home city, Peninsula's home city of Hong Kong, to Istanbul was the first stop, crossing all of Asia and much of the Middle East. And so Fadis did all of his studying, and he really bored deep into these cuisines and found all of the DNA of all Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and all the places that the Silk Road went through. And he managed to somehow or another coin a, a kitchen, a Silk Road kitchen, unlike anything I've ever eaten before. And it's one of the sexiest, most interesting restaurants in the whole world. It overlooks the Bosphorus from a terrace with 30 pomegranate trees. And already, even if they were serving cheeseburgers, it'd be a great place to have a meal. But the food is mesmerizingly interesting. Alec, what is it like to be visiting Istanbul as a tourist at the moment? We haven't read a lot of travel stories from Turkey lately. It's obviously been in the news for other reasons. Right, of course. Well, that was very much in my mind when I went there too. Istanbul, when we think about it, I mean, it's there it is perched between the Black Sea, which is the Slavic Mediterranean and the other Mediterranean and everything that gets to and from Ukraine and a large part of all of southern Russia goes through the Bosphorus. I mean, there are tensions. People are very aware of the war. But on the other hand, there's a lot of political energy in Turkey right now. Istanbul is a very liberal city. It's an East, it's a European city and an Asian city. It's young. It's creative. It's really the New York of Turkey. Turkey just had elections. Erdogan their president was reelected. Some people were happy about this. Many of the people who I spoke with on my trip were not. So it's a hive. It's a place where there's a lot going on. And But what I do feel, too, though, very strongly is that if you think back to the Ottoman Empire, Turkey did have a huge empire that butted all the way into Europe. I mean, most of Yugoslavia was part of the Ottoman Empire. The shadow of that empire is still there. 
And the Turks, actually the Ottoman Empire was very peaceful and strangely liberal. And it wasn't until after it flew apart after World War II that a lot of the colonization of the Middle East by France and England started creating messy problems. So the Turks, looking at history from their point of view, are feeling proud of themselves again. And this actually is reflected in their food. I mean, this is very much part of Fatih Tutak's the gestalt of what he's doing is he's very proud to be a Turk. I mean, he's proud of his culture. Turkey is a really rich, fascinating culture. And his food is just stunningly, stunningly good. And it's as diverse in, uh, regional kitchens as Mexico or Italy. I mean, the different regions of Turkey, from the Mediterranean coast to the Black Sea, to Istanbul, to Anatolia, to the whole thing. Every region of Turkey has its own cooking so he's tried to sort of interpret all of that stuff in both of the restaurants, both at Turk, the Michelin two-star, and the new one at the Peninsula Galata, which is just genius. And if anybody's listening and thinks they want to have a meal there, pick up your phone right now and make a reservation. It is just rammed. Everybody in Istanbul wants to be there. And the people watching in that restaurant, which is another reason I love restaurants, it's like going to the theater. Wow. I mean, it is everybody who's interesting in Istanbul is sitting on that terrace every night. It's just great. Alec, one of the things you bring up in your story is Turkish wine. So, which I know is kind of growing in awareness, but you found great wines that were Turkish wines, right? I was surprised by that. I shouldn't be surprised by that because, of course, you know, the Mediterranean world, there's wine everywhere in the Mediterranean world. I wondered a little bit about Turkey as a Muslim country. I mean, every Muslim country has its own attitudes toward alcohol. Turkey is relatively liberal about it. They like Iraq. They like their aniseed spirit, like the Greeks like their Uso. Wine, it just didn't register with me. But the wine that Fatih, I had dinner with him, and he really took me by the hand and took me through different regions, wine regions of Turkey. And if I was a wine importer in the U.S., I would be looking really closely at some of these wines. He sent a bottle of one of the wines, the best Turkish wine to Yannick know the three-star chef in Paris, and he wanted me to taste it, so we did. And it was as good as a Cote Gautier, which is one of my favorite wines in the whole world from the Rhone Valley. It was just stunningly good wine. And he had a sort of a Cheshire cat expression on his face. And he said, so I sort of have the feeling that you didn't expect much, Alec. And I said, well, it's not that. And he said, yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, I did not actually expect much from his wine. But I do want to tell you the name. But, well, it's in Turkish, so we're not going to get very... Kermizi Ser Sarap. And the vineyard, I think, is Akisar. So, yeah, I think that's what it is. It has a golden lion on the label. But it was just incredibly good. And Alec, how is the exchange rate? Is the dollar going a good way there against the Turkish lira? Istanbul is incredibly affordable right now because the Turkish lira, the Turkish economy has been on a bit of a roller coaster. They are trying to support the value of the Turkish lira because they have a sh just a shocking rate of inflation. So the Turks are doing the thing that one does in any country where people don't have a lot of confidence in the value of their money within the next 24 hours. You put it into gold, you put it into assets, you put it into dollars, Swiss francs or pounds or whatever. So 
it's hugely affordable. It's a great time to be going to Turkey. And the dollar is, yeah, people, every time I took out a credit card, people would say, you don't have any real paper dollars? I'd say, nope. Sorry. Well, it sounds fantastic. I mean, it's like, if you were thinking about packing up your suitcases at the end of summer, it sounds like you should keep them. It's definitely, as we say, a restaurant to fly for, probably. Well, I think that Istanbul is turning into one of the world's great food cities from lots of points of view. I mean, it's a creative, prosperous city that's recovering its pride. It's a very literary city. I mean, the Istanbul is as bookish as London or Paris or New York. And there is right near the peninsula, there are two new art museums right down on what used to be sort of an industrial waterfront. And I went to both of them and they're five minute walk from the peninsula. And you see the quality of the art that's being done in Istanbul right now. And I think that, I mean, New York, when sometimes the best art comes out of New York when the city's under a lot of pressure, when it's flying apart at the seams, interesting stuff happens. And the same thing in many cities, whether it's Berlin or New York or what. And I think Istanbul, there's a lot of pressure on the city for lots of different reasons, political ones, economic ones, and what have you. The art scene there is absolutely thriving. And so... Yeah, the food is brilliant, but the art scene is absolutely galvanizing. And the city of Istanbul also is, I mean, there are parts of the world that just regularly charm me because their urbanism is so human. Istanbul is a city where you always find a bench when you want to sit down. And the bench usually has a good view. It's like that in Catalonia and Spain, too. And you just came back from Portugal, you said, Michael. I think the Portuguese urbanism is very humanistic too. I mean, the cities in Portugal always have a bench next to a fountain in the shade, just when you think you can't walk another foot. And Istanbul is very much like that too. So yeah, it's fantastic value for money for food, but it's also an art hive right now. And it's always been a hive. I mean, it's been a cauldron, East meets West cauldron for all of its history and a place where ideas butt up against each other. People hear each other, listen to, to different points of view. And uh, I think it's a fascinating city. Well, Alec, we're envious, but we loved reading about it and living through your experience vicariously. So thank you so much for not only going there, but coming back and telling us all about it. Well, my pleasure. Speak soon. Have a great fall. Experience. Thank you, Alex. All right. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. Bye, Alec. Thanks so much. Okay, Michael. Well, is that going to be on your list? For sure. It's, as you said, it's a restaurant worth flying for. I'm actually famished just thinking about it. A hearty recommendation from Alec and probably a perfect segue into recommending other things. So not only is it the weekend, but it is also a three-day weekend for some of us. Not in the UK, sadly. But Michael, we've got lots of hours to fill. Anything at all to recommend? I do. Have you seen The Deepest Breath on Netflix? No. How is it? Okay. Last week, I was talking about The 100-Foot Wave, which is about riding the highest waves on the ocean. And this is recommended to me by a good friend, Victoria. And it's this stunning documentary about a world I've read about, but haven't seen the obsessive world of free diving. Do you know anything about this whole seen, Ashley? No, I know about free soloing. Okay, free diving is people who basically, extreme sport where they, people plunge toward the blackness of the ocean floor. All they wear is basically a wetsuit and a nose plug, not even goggles. And they swim what is essentially the height of the Statue of Liberty, twice once down and once back up, all holding their breath. Okay, and 
parts of this make me claustrophobic. Other parts, I'm finding myself holding my breath. It's so tense, but it's also profoundly beautiful. It follows this Italian free diver who's trying to break a world record and another guy, but it's haunting, beautiful. These people who do it are so obsessed because as they say, like, I feel at the bottom of the ocean, this is where I belong. And it's a pretty amazing look. You love the water. I would suggest check it out. It's pretty amazing. It might be a way to come out of the water at the end of summer. So it's called The Deepest Breath and it's on Netflix now. And you, my dear? In terms of television shows, I have been watching Deadwood, which Alessandra Stanley, our co-editor at Airmail, recommended to me because I'd never seen it before, actually. And I have to say, she was completely right. Lower the shades. Don't talk to anyone for 48 hours. It's really that good. It came out in 2004 and it was on for, I think, three seasons on what was known as HBO at the time. But for those of you who do not have multiple days this week to disappear from the planet. We do have a fabulous new issue of Airmail Look that just came out at airmail.news backslash look. This is our beauty and wellness publication that is edited by Linda Wells. And we have so much deliciousness in here. We've got the new phenomenon known as the revenge face. This is about how people are getting divorces and they're getting plastic surgery at the same time. We also talk about lasers, specifically lasers in the nether regions. Michael, I'm not going to use the word vagina because I know that will embarrass you, but we're talking about this sort of notion of vaginal rejuvenation and what that's all about you're blushing, I can tell. Oh, we also have an article on sexting. Hannah Butts used to teach at Oxford, but there was one skill she did not have in her arsenal and that was sexting. She's going to remedy that situation for us and she writes all about it. We've also got lots more deliciousness in the issue. Do check it out. Airmail.news backslash look. He's totally speechless, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Nope, nope. All right, Michael, thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. Michael, now compose yourself. Please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitelli, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. Most of all, thank you again for joining us. Enjoy the long weekend.